0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. This is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. I got a question for you. Are you one of those just outrageous parents that thinks that critical race theory probably should not be pushed on your elementary school student? Well, then uh, I got news for you. You're a bully. That's right. You're a bully. If, If you have a problem with what's going on within public education right now with respect to curriculum, or you just have a larger problem with the overall structure of how we educate our children within the public school system, then chances are you might be a bully. And this is coming from No Lesson Authority, then I'm going to read up here. It's coming from Randy Weingarten, who's accusing Republicans of bullying teachers on race and preventing teachers from teaching accurate history. That's right. This was all in response to some of the comments that came about from a, um, there was a live stream event that the National Federation of Teachers put on, and uh, it was Ibram X. Kendi who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? Big proponent of critical race theory. And some some parents have shown, obviously, a lot of concern over this. We've seen this in Fairfax County. We've seen it in Loudoun County. We've really seen it all over the country, not just here in Virginia. And um, some of the responses about this prompted parents to respond, prompted uh, Republican lawmakers to respond. And therefore, the head of this particular teachers union said that they were being bullied and, and they didn't want teachers to teach accurate history. And one of the things that is very important to understand about this. Is that a lot of times I've gotten into discussions about education where it's not really a discussion, it's not even a debate, right? There's a particular tactic being used, and you see it being demonstrated here in this comment. Now, maybe there are people that are engaged in bullying tactics with respect to teaching this sort of curriculum, right? But I know of at least a couple cases here in Virginia where teachers were suspended because they weren't going along with whatever the, you know, the, the woke advocates wanted, whether it had to do with uh, pronouns or whether it had to do with things like critical race theory or speaking out against it, right? Those teachers were punished for it. I don't know of any teachers so far that have actually been punished for teaching critical race theory or for pushing or advocating for it. So there's some question on where is the actual bullying taking place. But the most important thing I want you to take away from this is using the term bullying puts the, person, the other person in a position where now they have to defend themselves and say, no, 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 I'm not bullying. I just have a problem with this. And that's part of what she's trying to accomplish here, right? That is a debate tactic. So what we're going to go over today is hopefully how to recognize and spot these types of tactics, how to properly respond to it, and how to effectively have a productive conversation on the issue of public education. Before we do that, I wanna thank everybody for watching us on YouTube and Facebook. Thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please remember to like, share, and as always, comment. Give us your feedback. Let us know whether or not the arguments that we're presenting you with are working. Did you get a response that we haven't addressed yet? Would you like us to address it on a podcast? That's all stuff that we can make happen here on Making the Argument, but we need your feedback. So please, like, share, follow, and comment. All right, let's get into this. Um, First things first. We've been somewhat programmed to think of public education as government-run schools with teachers essentially being government employees. And you, you see this a lot because every time I've talked about education reform, I get this almost knee-jerk reaction, either from people on the other side of the aisle and, and usually from, from teachers' unions, saying that I'm against public education or I want to take funding away from education, or I don't support our teachers. Now, just like the bullying comment, it's important to understand, this is, this is not a debate. This is not an argument where they're actually addressing what I'm proposing, because if they're actually paying attention, they would recognize that I'm not opposing public education. I'm not even talking about reducing funding, and I'm certainly not putting teachers in the sort of situation that I believe they're in now, where they're being unfairly uh, judged and controlled by politicians and administrative staff. So when they engage in these sorts of tactics, right, that's not a response to what I mean by educational reform. That is a debate tactic. It's a rhetoric tactic to put me on the defensive so that somebody watching the conversation from outside is automatically categorizing in their own mind that, oh, this is the person for teachers in public education. And this is the person that is against public uh, education and teachers. Well, I like teachers and I want to educate the public. Therefore, this guy must be the good guy. Right. And, it, and it, it puts them in a position where they don't even feel like it's necessary to hear my arguments because I've already been characterized as the bad guy. I already don't like the things that the person hearing this conversation likes. And so they don't have to actually hear the critiques or, or the um, suggestions for how we can improve the system. So it is a debate tactic. It's rhetoric. And unfortunately it's used a lot and I find it interesting that it's used a lot by the same people that think they should be the ones in charge, sometimes exclusively in charge, of educating our children on how to critically think and put forward good arguments. So again, I find that interesting. The same people that think that they should have a great deal of say and control over how our children think are using these sort of rhetorical tactics in order to shut down debate when it comes to actually looking at and doing some hard analysis of our current educational system and determining how we can improve it. All right. So how do we respond to this? Uh, how do we respond to this in such a way to where, uh, again, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of faith right now that I could get into a debate with somebody from the head of a teacher's union and that we could sit down and have a productive conversation. It's just We have diametrically different worldviews on a lot of these issues, but that doesn't mean you can't have effective conversations with other people, especially people in the public right now that are kind of frustrated with our, our public schools, what happened during lockdowns and with COVID. Um, You know, some of the opportunities that their kids either, you know, don't have or standardized testing. There's all sorts of opportunities right now to have a productive conversation about education with people that are actually interested in getting to solutions. So how do you do that? All right. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of defining things right up front, right? Define your goals. Define your terms, Because if you do that up front, you're going to have, you're you're going to um, reduce the odds that you're just going to be talking around each other, or you're going to get into these like little tribal pools where all of a sudden it's it's my team against yours, my tribe against yours. We don't want that. We actually want to find out what are goals that we agreed on, and then define our terms so that we know what we're talking about. And then we can start to talk about pros and cons of various systems. Okay, so step one, what is the goal of educating the people, right? What's the goal of public education? And I I would say that, presumably, it's about helping to equip students in order to achieve their objectives, both socially and economically, right? That's a big big service that education and, and specifically schooling provides is that there's a social component to that, which can be positive or negative. And then there's a knowledge component to that, and hopefully a wisdom component too, right? Not just the knowledge of facts, but uh, how to properly apply that knowledge in such a way as to achieve your your social and economic goals, and and hopefully do so in a way that not only benefits you, but benefits your family, your community, your country in general, right? That's I I think if if we put it on that level, I don't think I would find too many people that disagreed with that objective, right? So let's use that as our objective. Our objective is we want to equip students, all students, right we want to make sure that they're equipped uh, better equipped with the the knowledge and training and education necessary in order to better equip their or better achieve their goals and function within society in general all right good so that's your first step right your first step is to get someone to agree on a common objective right then you can start discussing different options for how to get to the objective but you got to get the objective first if someone believes that you know public education is nothing more than you know taking kids away from parents in order to re-educate them, well, then they have very different goals. If someone else believes that education has a, you know, whatever, right, there's a million different things you can come up with. But I do think that most people that I know that I talk to can agree on that idea, equipping students with the appropriate knowledge, social interaction to, to help them be successful economically and socially. All right, common goal. So what's next step? Next step is to actually define your terms, right? What is public education? Because public education actually is a far broader term than it's sometimes given credit for, or or in a colloquial sense, or in kind of like a common understanding of the term. We're kind of programmed to think automatically one way about public education, but there's actually different, there's a spectrum within public education. Now on, on one side of the spectrum, you have one form where it's like a complete government control, complete government monopolization of education. And you see this a lot of times in authoritarian states, communist regimes, fascist regimes, where it's it's not just that the government provides a public um, option for education, the government requires you by law to go to the schools that they run and administer. So you're forced to pay taxes for it, you're forced to send your children there, you have very little say with respect to the curriculum or the teachers or what the school is going to focus on, um, and there are no private alternatives. Right. You have to send them to the government school. Right. That's a complete government. Now, listen, that falls within the definition of public education. Now, I would hope that in this country, none of us want that. But I will say I'm becoming a little bit more concerned because there's there's more and more voices that are coming up within the, the discussion on education, which are recommending essentially abolishing homeschooling or severely reducing access to private school, or even things like charter schools, because they think it all needs to be managed within a government-run, government-controlled system. Now, they might be willing to accept some degree of localized control, but more and more we're seeing a push toward more federalized control even in some of these discussions. And I think that's scary, because it's moving us toward this realm where now you have this government, complete government control over education, complete monopoly. So let's hope that nobody really wants that. And if they do, let's hope that we can reason them into why that's probably a bad idea. Because even if you like the concept of, of overall centralized government control of education, when the people you like are in power, what happens when the people you don't like are in power? Right? That, could be, that could pose a real problem. So let's go to the, the second form, or, or another form. We're going to go over three forms today. Right? Arguably there's more, but three general categories. Second form. Second form of public education is what we have in the United States. So it's something of a, a public option that everybody is, is required by law to essentially subsidize and attend unless you can afford a government-approved um, alternative. So in the United States, all of us pay taxes, and a portion of those taxes, usually it's your property taxes at the local level, and then there's uh, generally, you know, on, on average, if you look at your local school district. Most of your funding is probably gonna come from local property taxes. Another big chunk of it, maybe anywhere from 30 to 40% will come from state funding. And then the, the leftover, maybe nine, uh, maybe 10% or less comes from federal funding. Okay, and, and all of that money generally has certain requirements that come with it, okay? So it's not like the federal government or the state government just gives your local school district money and they can spend it however they want on what works best for their school district. No, there's, there's always rules attached to the funding right? And we're going to get into why this is a little bit later, but essentially it's it's a, a mechanism for, it's a mechanism, and attempt to try to achieve accountability and quality. So you only get the state dollars if you do certain things, or you only get state dollars for certain things. And you see the same thing on the federal level as well, right? But a lot of your local property taxes are, are what what finances roughly half, um, sometimes more, maybe, maybe in some situa- situations a little bit less, but usually over half is, is through local property taxes. Now, In Virginia, we'll just take that as an example, but a lot of states have similar provisions within their constitution or within the laws. Um, The the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia, is required by law to provide a free, compulsory, and quality education. Which means that if you can't afford one of the alternatives, maybe it's homeschooling, maybe it's a co-op, maybe it's a private school. If you can't afford one of those alternatives, you are required by law to send your child to a government-administered school. Right? Now, a lot of times we call it a public school, but it's important to understand something, right? When we talk about a public school, we're not just talking about something that, that the public can go to or that students have access to. We're talking about something that the government essentially administers in most cases. There's some uh, public charter schools that are a little bit different, um, and, and honestly, a lot of them have seen a lot of success. Some of them haven't, but uh, most of them have. But essentially, you got to understand that what that means is the school that you're being required to send your child to is run by the government. The government has a huge say in the curriculum, and the government essentially employs everybody working within that environment, right? It is a government-run school. That is is what is meant when we say public schooling. So that's that's the U.S. system, right? There's still options. Sometimes those options are more limited, right? You go state to state. Some laws have rules that make it really easy to homeschool. Some states have uh, rules or laws that make it very difficult to homeschool. Some states are very friendly to uh, public and private charter schools. Some are not. Um, so again, it just kind of varies state to state. But that's kind of that hybrid component where there's still private options, but there is a publicly subsidized government-run um, system that you have to send your child to unless you can afford an alternative. All right. Then what's the other uh, the other version of public education? This is where we get into the more of like the government subsidized component. So this is where government is providing funding that is specifically earmarked for educational outcomes, but the government isn't managing the institution. So one of the ways you could look at this is something like the Montgomery GI Bill. So you go into the military, you get your Montgomery GI Bill, and then you go and you pick a college. Now some of those colleges are state run, some of them are private. Let's say you go to a private college. Now the government might say that certain schools are eligible for Montgomery GI and certain schools are not, but pretty much it's, it's fairly open. Right? As long as you're a halfway reputable school with decent accreditation, you can use your Montgomery GI there. Private, public, doesn't really matter. So you now choose to take your education dollars to a private university and to take the classes that you want. Like there's a whole host of options that you have within that university with respect to what you want to major in, what classes you want to take, where you might want to minor. Maybe you have some classes you want to take that you, know, you, you just enjoy or you think would be good for things like certification purposes. Maybe go to a junior or a community college in order to get certified on a particular trade or skill set, right? All of that can be used, but the, the fundamental component here is it's a system where the the government is providing funding. Now, in this case with the Montgomery GI, you earn it. It's not just an entitlement program, you actually earn it. And then you take it to the educational institute, the approved educational institution of your choice, in order to get the sort of education or training that works best for you. So on a on a, um, a model outside of education, one of the ways this is referred to as dollars follow students. So essentially Instead of the government employing all the principals and, and administrators and teachers and, and everything else, instead of the government uh, deciding what the curriculum or testing or methodologies would look like, uh, whether it be state, local, or federal governments making those decisions, and usually it's in tandem, usually there's a there's an amalgamation of decisions being made at various levels. This would be something where we say, okay, there's, there's a, a, a bare minimum criteria. So let's say the rule is... You know, there's a certain degree of accreditation you have to go through to make sure that um, the the teaching methodology that you're using makes sense, um, that you are actually learning something, right? But it's very, very basic. Maybe there's a standardized test you have to take. So, for instance, in Virginia, if you opt to be a uh, a homeschooler, and you're not religiously exempted, then what ends up happening is every year you take a standardized test that the uh, state of the Commonwealth of Virginia accepts. And as long as your child scores at a particular level, that standardized test, you can continue to homeschool. Right. So there's certain criteria that the government would put in, but it, it wouldn't be so much on telling you how to do it. It would just say there's certain outcomes that you have to go in order to get the funding right? Then you would take those dollars, which in the Commonwealth of Virginia would be about $10,000 per student. It averages all over the country. It's as high as $20,000 per student. In some uh, states, it can be as low as, I think, 8000 in other states. But you get that money, and it goes into an account or whatever the mechanism they want to set up, and now you allocate it to the educational opportunities that you think work best for your child. Now, nothing's to say that you, you can't have fail-safes within this particular program, but within a Dollars Follow Students program, what you have is you have more of like private administration of education but then you have public financing of education and the government actually does this all the time with a lot of other programs like for instance when you look at things like EBT cards or food stamps uh, the government doesn't come in and say you have to shop at this grocery store or you have to shop at this particular area. What it does is it says we're going to provide you funds for a particular thing in this case food. And then you can go into the marketplace and you can pick those institutions which best meet the dietary needs of you and your family. Right? So it's it's not like this is an unknown concept. Um, and it's actually a compromise position between those people that think the government shouldn't be involved in all and those people that think the government should essentially control the entire system, right? So this is a compromise position where we say, okay, we'll all pay taxes, we'll all accept that we got to pay taxes, we'll all accept that you know all kids are, are going to go to school, but We want more power put into the hands with respect to choosing those educational options into the hands of parents and ultimately teachers. This is an important component to remember about this particular type of methodology. Um, Right now, if you want to be a teacher in the United States, chances are you're probably going to go to a public institution and there's all kinds of rules, restrictions, requirements and things that go along with that. When you teach in a private setting, and sometimes you'll have teachers that go to a private setting that actually pays less, but they prefer it because they don't have to comply with a bunch of government mandates. And while you may think certain government mandates or requirements are good, not all of them are. And, and a lot of teachers in public schools right now are very, very frustrated about how much of their day is spent just trying to comply with local, state, and federal mandates instead of actually teaching their students, right? So one of the, one of the potential benefits of dollars following students is not just that students have more options, it's that teachers have more options, all right? So that's kind of your, your, your takeaway from all this is when you talk about public education you define your terms, Make sure that you're talking about the same thing, because if their only definition of public education is a government run school, okay, then what they're doing is they're taking a narrow definition of public education and they're making it the whole definition. And that's problematic. That's not fair. That's not, that's not actually open-minded to the other public options that are available. And so it's important to kind of go through this system. And, and it's, I think it's good to kind of go through the extremes. Well, do you want a system where there's absolutely no private options and you're, it's illegal to homeschool? oh, well, no, I don't want that, okay, well, then we agree that that's also a form of public education that we wouldn't want, and not wanting that form of public education doesn't mean we're against public education. It doesn't mean we're against teachers. It means we don't think that would be a good method of public education. We'd like something different. And so if you can get them to acknowledge that, you can broaden the perspective on what qualifies as public education, and then you can define terms. And now if they say, okay, I acknowledge that there's, there's different versions. Now let's talk about which ones would be more beneficial. So again, step one, you defined your objective. Step two, you've defined your terms. We've broadened the conversation about public education. So it's not in this narrow field that some people want to keep it, all right? Let's move on to step three, because now that we've established goals and objectives, or goals, objectives, and terms, we can start to talk about processes and methodology, right? Really hard to have a discussion about process. If you don't know where you're going, then it's really hard to argue about directions, right? So now that we've established those first two things, we move into step three, and that is what is the best method or what is the best approach, okay? Now, well-meaning people can disagree on this. That's important to understand. Um, Like, so for instance, some people like the structure in curriculum. They, They like a very, very structured setting for their student, or some students really appreciate a very structured setting, and so they might prefer that. Um, Another parent might be very upset by the fact that the school, the public school that their kids go to, spends a lot of money on the football field, but they don't spend any money on the music department, right? And uh, some some people like homeschooling because they feel it, it gives them more options and it gives them more opportunity to spend time with their children. Some parents like what they call unschooling, which is a very unstructured version of education. Um, in fact, a lot of the unschooling is actually more popular, or I, I shouldn't say more popular, but very popular within certain environments that are actually more left-leaning because they like the opportunity. Maybe they live out on a, you know, a, a farm or something like that, and they prefer to structure the education in accordance with what's going on in their daily lives and what the child's interests might be. They don't like a, the super-structured environment that you might see within a public education system or, or whatnot. So they have a different approach or methodology. Part of the problem for choosing a best method, right? Because this usually ends up being part of the discussion. Well, what's the best way to do it? Is that the needs, wants, and desires of students, which are ultimately the customers, right? Are very, very different. Now there's certain things that that might be fairly common or or universal, right? So for instance, understanding basic math, uh, literacy, understanding how to read, These are things that I think we all agree we need to be a part of your basic education. You need to be able to add and subtract. You need to be able to multiply. You need to be able to divide. You need to be able to effectively communicate and it's difficult to do that or difficult to expand your education if you can't read or critically think about things. So those are things that no matter who you are, what your political ideology is, what your religious ideology is, we kind of all agree that those are our basic universal components that we want people to understand. But the issue is, is what's the best method for teaching math? What's the best method for teaching literacy? Is it it phonics for literacy? Is it new math? Is it old math? Well, the answer is it it depends. Now, there are certain methodologies that appeal to a larger degree of the population. So it might be that 70% of the student population does really well with a certain type of math curriculum. Okay, well, what does that leave the 30% at? Right? Maybe uh, you know, 90% do really well with, with reading with a certain uh, methodology or approach. Okay, well, where does that leave the other 10%? So even when we can agree on universal objectives with respect to education, there's still gonna be different methodologies, some that work, some that don't work. And so it's, it's really important to understand that when we're talking about education, one, you know, we, we have to leave it open to different methodologies that can be effective for different students, okay? Um, one of the current challenges or one of the current method of schooling we currently have in the United States is designed to achieve certain test-based objectives, right? So if you're, if you're designing your educational methodology around achieving good test scores, well, that might not be the best way to actually determine whether or not your education system is, is maximizing uh, productivity for each individual student, right? It, it can certainly be a bad way to judge teachers based off of what their student population looks like. So the, the main takeaway here, the main takeaway that you're trying to get them to acknowledge is that diversity in methodology is important because we have a diverse student body. But if you allow for centralized control of a system, the more centralized a system is, generally speaking, the less adaptable it is. It tries to impose certain systems based off of the general population of the student body. So for instance, they might say that, okay, this, method, this methodology works for the, the most students, and so that's the one we're now going to use. And as a result, students inevitably get left behind. So when we're talking about best methodologies, we need to, again, define our terms here, but at least get someone to acknowledge, acknowledge the very, very simple point that if it's centralized control, and especially if it's being in large part controlled by elected officials, it's not even being controlled by parents, by students, by teachers, none of that, right? They may have some input, but ultimately they don't get to make the decision. You're not going to end up with a system that is highly adaptable or can come up with unique methodologies to help individual students. It's going to be much harder to achieve that through a centralized system. And so if we can agree that we want a system that's adaptable, that we want a system that is as diverse as the student body it's trying to uh, support and educate, well then we got a pretty good argument to be made here that maybe over-centralized control is not the best way to achieve that. Okay, fourth, how do we measure success? This one is really important. So in a complete government monopoly, right, that first system that we did, it's really easy. The powers that be decide what success looks like, right? And obviously the way that some government institutions defined what a successful education looked like, whether it was communist Russia or was you know, fascist Italy or, or Nazi Germany, they had some really bad ideas with respect to what constituted a good and quality education, right? So when, when you have that sort of government monopoly over education, then whoever's in power ultimately determines what the measures of success are, right? So what do you have within a system in the United States? Well, it's similar in a lot of ways. Um, it's similar to the first method in a lot of ways because While we have elections for people that will determine the measures of success, it's still being determined by a third party, right? It's still a third party. It's an elected official that is determining what your success is. So you might have some degree of say in what your child learns or the quality of their education, but largely it's determined based off of who you vote for, either as your state representative, your your congressperson, um, you know, your school board representative, and, and so they're up for election, what, every two, four, six years, right? That, that's generally the bracket where your representatives are up for election. Well, I want you to think about this. Let's say you've got a brand new uh, elected member of the school board. You don't like the way the direction is going. You're not happy with the curriculum. Your, your student's falling behind. You want to see some change. All right, well, it's not like you can just send your kid to a different school, right? Your, your kid has been assigned to a school based off of the address and what school serves that particular area. Um, in in most cases within public education. So maybe you go to your school board and you advocate and you get a bunch of parents together and maybe you're able to affect some changes. Or maybe the school board says, we'd love to make some changes, but we can't because we're bound by state funding. And if we don't, you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, the the locality gets to make the decision. Okay, that's, that's partially true and partially false. They might be able to get to make a decision with the things that they've been allowed to make decisions on. Or they might be able to make certain decisions, but if they do, they forego state or federal funding. All right, so now there is a financial price tag to making the decision in accordance with the the needs, wants, and desires of the local population, right? But let's say you go and you advocate and you make a good case and you can't change anything. And so you say, well, that's it. I'm going to we're going to get a new school board elected. Well, chances are that's going to take anywhere from two to four years to actually achieve. Right. Where, you know, especially if you've got a school board that all thinks in a particular way, you're going to have to change maybe three, four five positions on that school board before you can affect that change. And that can take multiple years to achieve. So it, it can be it can be difficult. And you think about it with your child's education. If it took you from your child's freshman year to their junior year to affect the education, well, it's probably too late in many respects. Right, but that's, that's really the only system for, for measuring success that we have that the parent or the student um, or in many cases even the teacher has for measuring success. That, that is largely left to government officials and your only input into that decision, your only thing that really uh, differentiates that between the government system is either A, you can spend your own money to put them into a private school or B, you can attempt to change your representation and change the rules. But both of those are either expensive or they're very, very time consuming. All right, so what's the third option we discussed? Well, this is one where the dollars follow the students. So how do, how do you measure success in that environment? Well, where dollars follow students, success is measured far less by a central authority and more by choice, okay? In almost every other area of life where you are looking for goods and services, you are able to select from a variety of options based off of your individual preferences and requirements. This is very important to understand, all right? You have a huge say in determining success by voting with your feet. That's how that's how what we call the marketplace works. All right, and the marketplace is just, you know, individuals making decisions on where to cooperate, uh, where to compete, things like that. That's the marketplace. All right, so whenever you have the ability to take your dollars somewhere else, a couple of things happen. One, it creates a competitive environment for people competing for your business. Now, within an educational environment, you see this within the university system, right? You're not forced to go to a university system. So they come up with different ways to try to compete with your dollars or for your dollars. So it may be what they major in. That's why you have some universities that are known for certain things. Um, They may be it could be anything from sports to arts uh, and music. It could be science, you know, MIT for engineering. Um, You might go to Harvard for law school or Yale for law. Um, You know, there's a whole variety and host of options there with educational things that are are competing specifically for your dollars. And what's interesting is that they're not just competing, right? But they're also cooperating. And so that's a really important nature of of a marketplace. When you have a marketplace of ideas and you have options and you have the ability to take your funding with your student, all right, you not only create people that are trying to cater to your individual needs, right, and, and pay a price for not being able to do it, because right? the government doesn't really pay a price. If they're not meeting your kids' needs, they don't really pay a price for that. right? But if a private institution doesn't meet your kids' needs, they do because you have the option of taking your funding somewhere else. The other thing that it creates is all of a sudden it frees up all of this money in an environment where now individuals can come in and establish different educational options. So maybe you want some sort of hybrid option. Maybe when it comes to the education dollars and the way you're going to spend them, you want to send your child to a school for certain subjects. But then you want to homeschool on other subjects, and then maybe you want a specialized tutor for something else. So maybe your, your child is a phenom with the violin, right? Just a, a prodigy. And so you want them, you, you want them to get their basic math, basic English, um, you know basic history, civics, things like that. Uh, But maybe you've decided, well, I want the school for math and English because I I want somebody with more credentials than I have to teach them that. But I'm comfortable teaching the history based off of my own background or experience. Or maybe I'm comfortable teaching them the civics because of my experience. But when it comes to violin, when it comes to music, I want to be able to allocate a certain number of resources to that because they have a very unique talent for it. And you can imagine the same thing for science, math, English, history, entrepreneurship, skills, trades, whatever it is. Right. But you now have the ability. What that does is it creates a whole new marketplace for people to be able to provide these options to parents. And then the moment you don't like an option, you can pick another one. Right. You don't have to wait for a two, four, six year electoral process. You don't have to show up to every school board meeting for the next two years. You don't got to do all that. You can just say, you know what, this isn't working out. And I've actually experienced this personally. We've had our kids, we've homeschooled our kids, we've had them in public school, and we've had them in a co-op where they did uh, partial education in a, in a co-op and then part of their education was at home. And here's what we found they were getting to a level of math that we weren't as comfortable teaching, and so we wanted them to provide them with somebody that was better on that particular topic. But here's what we found the curriculum that they were using wasn't working for our student. So we tried it out for about two or three months, and the more frustrated our student got, we said, you know what? Nope, we're switching to this other curriculum because we think it's gonna work better. Guess what, three months later, different curriculum, worked like a charm, right? And, and again, it was nothing against that teacher, it was nothing even against that curriculum. Other students were doing really well with it, but ours wasn't. But because we had the option to change, because we got to measure success, not based off of what the whole class was doing, but based off of what our student was doing, we were able to find options that worked specifically for her and allowed her to improve, right? So that's what we talk about when we're, when we're measuring success. So when you take away the choice option, even in a democratic environment, this is important to understand, you are essentially left with whatever a simple majority of the people want. So here's your takeaway. When we talk about measuring success, here is your takeaway in the discussion that you're having with somebody. You want them to acknowledge that measuring success has to be unique to the customer, in this case, the student. Coming up with broad goals with respect to things like graduation rates or standardized test scores or college attendance. That might sound good in a campaign ad, right? That might even be good for some people. Okay, but they don't really tell us critical things we need to know about whether or not we are effectively measuring individual success. So... That's what you wanna get someone to acknowledge when we talk about how do we measure success within the different public educational options that we take? Are we measuring success by what politicians say? Or are we measuring success by what customers say? Students, student outcomes, right? And we don't want these broad categories. We don't want to hear, oh, 86% graduation rate. Or well, what, happened to the other, what happened to the other 14% in there? Right, or, or we've got a 95% literacy rate. That's great, what happened to the other 5%? Is there something that we could have done that would have been better for them? And if our answer is, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but we're going to force them to be in this system that we already know is failing a certain degree of our student population, what would be wrong with at least discussing allowing a different option that allows people to measure success in a way that's relevant to the individual outcomes of the student? right? doesn't mean we can't have some generalized standards, but, but why can't we allow for greater control over measures of success by the people that we're actually attempting to serve? right? So that's your takeaway from measuring success. Okay, fifth and final point. And this one is really important. Who gets to decide, right? So we talked about what are the objectives. We talked about what are the different methodology. We talked about different ways of of measuring success. But ultimately, this comes down to a question of who gets to decide. And the reason why this is so important is not just for education. It's actually very, very important for social harmony. And here's why. Often when we question the wisdom of our current system, okay, we're told that it serves the greater good or that it is the best method for ensuring that poor or disadvantaged kids receive a quality education. Now, maybe that's true and maybe it isn't, but if they are insisting on a government-controlled system, they are using the law to restrict options to the ones they prefer at the expense of your choice, right? So if they select the system that we have now, or God forbid, the complete government monopolization, They have said that they are so confident in their options' ability to achieve the the best results that they are going to force you by law to comply with it. Now, if you choose a different option which allows for greater choice, which allows them to choose the best option for your student, their student and you the best option for your student, are you making that same requirement of them? No. Or at least on a much lower level, if we're still accepting government financing of education. You're saying, look, you and I might agree on some things. We might disagree on others. So why don't you have the ability to educate your child and use the resources appropriately for their in-state, and I'll use them to, res- to resources for my children's state. You're the one providing an option there. They're the ones relying upon coercion. And if you want to know why we have so many fights going on right now across the United States with things like critical race theory, it's in part, Because we have certain people demanding that other people educate their child in a way that they not only think is bad, but they think is harmful. And so that's why we're we're fighting with one another. If we actually had greater options within our public education system, then if you're someone that really believes this is a good idea, I might disagree with you. But I'm willing to respect your right to bring up your children in the way you see fit. Provided that you're willing to respect my right to bring up my children the way I see fit. And if you're not willing to respect my right, well, then now you're forcing me into a situation where I can no longer, it can no longer be live and let live. One of us has to win at the expense of the other. So that's why I say this is not only important for foster, who gets to decide is not only important for things like measuring success. Or getting the best educational opportunities specific to the individual student, it's best for social harmony because now we no longer have to battle with one another on this. In fact, we can choose different options and if the option you choose is working far better than the option I've chosen, well now you're not forcing me to choose your option. I've now been convinced based off of the results, not just because you forced me to do it. All right, so one of these options is a far more peaceful option and one of them is far more coercive. Now, here's an argument that you will sometimes hear. Sometimes you will hear the argument that, well, this is just how the democratic process works. And if you are opposing it, if you're opposing the the current public school system we have, then you are in fact opposing the democratic process and you're being unfair. If you get this argument, I want you to try this example. Okay. I want you to look back at them. If they tell you that, okay, well, you know, Maybe I can't respond to your other arguments, but that's just how democracy works. We all vote, we all get a say, and at the end, that's what we go with. All right. We, I, I hope we've already explained why that's not a good idea, but here we go. This is the example I want you to, to give. Them. I want you to look at them and say, would you go to a restaurant where everyone in the establishment voted on what everyone else was going to eat? Or would you prefer a restaurant where you got to select the options from the menu that best suited your preferences? Because... While you may be thinking that, while this isn't ideal, maybe you don't like the restaurant where everyone's democratically, at least a majority of the customers would still get what they want, right? That's one of the arguments for democratic processes. The majority of people get what they want. But is that really true? Because here's what we usually find. In reality, a majority would probably not be getting what they actually wanted, but rather the best option they think they can get a majority to vote for. So if somebody tries to make the argument that you don't want the government to run education just through elected representatives, and they say, well, that's undemocratic, that's how democracy works, that's how we resolve these problems, give them that practical example of reminding them that, no, democracy is generally how we solve problems with respect to how force and coercion is going to be used. We don't use democracy to solve most of our problems, or we don't use corporate democracy to solve most of our problems. The way we address most challenges or preferences or ideals is by giving people options. I go into the restaurant, I select what works best for me based off of my individual preferences, and you get to do the same. Both of us are free to choose what works best. Now, I might realize later that I like what you ordered better than what I like what I ordered, and I can make a different option. I can make a different choice. But if the only option I'm being provided is what a simple majority of the restaurant has decided, well, then not only am I not getting what I probably wanted, even if I voted with the majority, I... I probably voted just for what I thought was the best option given what I thought a majority of people would vote for. And that is what we're currently doing within our education system. So while the democratic process might be good for th- some things, that doesn't mean it's good for everything. Right? Democracy might be a, a better way or a superior way based off of all the other options to determine who our elected representatives are. Who are then going to use democratic processes to determine when the government is going to use force and coercion in society. That might be the, the best way we have available to do something like that. That does not mean it is the ideal way to solve most of the problems or challenges that we have. None of you would want to sit down right now on Netflix, and every night before you turn on, before you turn on Netflix, you sit down there, and then all of a sudden all these shows come up and you get a countdown, 10, 9, and, and whoever, whatever the most people, whatever show the most people pick, that's the one you now have to watch for the next two hours. Nobody would want to use a system like that. But that's what happens when people start using this term democracy is if it's the ideal way to solve problems. It isn't. Choice, innovation, creativity, those are the ideal ways. So your main takeaway now, your main takeaway on this final point on who gets to decide is the idea that allowing for choice not only benefits students, it also benefits teachers. Because teachers will now be able to go to those institutions which also serve their needs. Students with special needs or talents will have greater opportunities to find the educational options that work best for them. And perhaps best of all, we won't need to constantly fight over the best method or curriculum because each of us have options now. So the whole, the whole debate with respect to who gets to decide is not just about who's most qualified to make these decisions. It's really a question of what is the peaceful mechanism for making these decisions versus what is the coercive mechanism for making these decisions. Because you can line up 10 PhDs in a room right now to give you the best methodology for teaching math or the best uh, idea for teaching history, and then you can find 10 more that will disagree. Or those 10, or maybe you'll have a majority that agree on a particular method, but it doesn't work for 20% of the students. Do we just say, sorry, 20% of the students? Or do we allow for different options and ideas within the marketplace of ideas? So let's sum this all up. Let's sum this all up. When you get in this discussion about education, first things first, establish goals. Come up with common goals that you both agree on. Then establish terms, right? You're getting them to broaden the definition of what public education actually is. You're not allowing them to narrow it as if the only option is the one that they pick, right? And we discussed three options today, all right? Then you also want to go over the idea of methodology. What are the best methods? And the, the takeaway that you're trying to get from that is methodology, the best method can, can differ greatly based off of the student and the desired outcome. Right? So it's important to have lots of methods, not a centrally imposed method. Step four was measuring success. Not only you know, how do we measure success, but who gets to measure success? In a government-controlled system, ultimately, politicians and elected officials decide what success looks like. Now, you might be able to say that you can vote for different people, but as we've already demonstrated, if it takes four years for you to get what you want, well, your child's already graduated high school. Your child's already gone through formative years of education because you didn't have any other options. You had to go with that one. So when we talk about measuring success, we want a system where you're able to measure success based off of the needs of your student. And then finally, number five, who gets to decide? Because if they're saying that they've decided this is the best option and now they want to impose it, they're the ones relying on coercion in order to impose a certain method, whereas you're allowing for options to include their options. You're the one that's relying on peaceful cooperation and a live and let live policy, whereas they're trying to oppose a particular methodology or systematic approach. And again, that's not only beneficial in order to make sure that we have educational outcomes that actually meet the needs of individual students in a very diverse student body, it's better for social harmony as well because now we don't have to fight with each other over what's going to be imposed on someone else. Because going back to the initial comment I made, about the head of the teachers union saying that Republicans were bullying teachers. Let me ask you this question. What sounds like a more egregious form of bullying? Parents being upset about something their kids are being taught that they genuinely think is harmful for them or politicians and certain organizations like teachers, like this teachers union, telling parents that they will now be forced To send their child to a school that teaches them something they believe is harmful. Which one of those sounds like bullying? Sounds to me like the parent just wants options. Sounds to me like the other side is the one that is saying we're going to use coercive force to get what we want and impose it. So I'll leave it with you. You decide who sounds more like a bully in that reality. Once again, thank you for joining us and making the argument like, share, comment. If you, if you go out and you actually use this argument, if you're having a conversation with, uh, with somebody about education and you use some of this argumentation um, and it works, let us know. The other thing is, is that if something didn't work or if somebody brought up a point that you didn't consider, let us know that as well. Put that into the comments section on, on YouTube is one of the best places to do it, as well as uh, Facebook when we post these over there. Um, let us know on there. We'll be happy. If you got another question that you want us to answer or you got a response from someone that you would like a, an answer for, let us know. We would love to help you make the argument. This is Nick Freitas, once again thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode.